0: CBHDD is reminding people that the Georgia Crisis and Access line can help those worried about opioid and stimulant misuse. The toll-free number is online and is active 24/7. More information at opioidresponse.info. It's Wednesday, June 9th. Time for another political rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. We have a really strong panel of guests for the show today to talk about a number of issues, including some election. Uh, related news that's um, really been in the headlines lately. Um, let me get to the introducing the panel right away. Uh, we're joined today by Mayor Julie Smith, Mayor of Tifton. We're really glad to have you back, Mayor Smith. And you know, I realize that in introducing you the last few times you've been on the show, I don't think I've ever mentioned, it, 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 at least I don't remember doing it, that you're the incoming uh, president of the Georgia Municipal Association. Your next year is going to be your year to run that organization.
1: Well, actually, I'll I'll be sworn in uh, next month as the first vice president and then the following year president. So uh, I'm I'm very honored to be in such great company of uh, elected officials from all across the state and to be a part of that organization. So, yeah, that's, that's exactly right. Very humbling.
0: I knew, that, I knew I knew that when we uh, reached out to you, we were getting somebody who matters in the among mayors in this state. <laughs> well, uh, congratulations thank thank on you. that! <laughs> thank you very much. I uh, we're joined that. by we're joined by Representative Sam Park, a Democrat. He represents the hundred first uh, state house district. Um, Sam is your entire district, Gwinnett County, and you're out there, kind of Sugarloaf Parkway in that area along President uh, along the. University Parkway out to Athens. Have I got that right?
2: Uh, th- that's correct. Good morning, Bill. Good morning, everyone. Happy to be here with you all. I and mean, congratulations, uh, Mayor Smith. Um, I know Jimmy Burnett is the current president of uh, the Georgia Municipal Association and looking forward uh, to, to seeing your leadership as well. But,
0: yeah. Well, thank you for being with us as well, Sam. Bernard Fraga, uh, Professor Bernard Fa- Fraga back with us, professor of political science at Emory University. Um, if I, I, I think the, the broadest way to uh, say your area of expertise is electoral politics, American electoral politics. You're, you're very involved in studying data on groups, groups of uh, voters, how they've cast their ballots, why they've cast them the way they've done. Add to that if you'd like to, Bernard.
3: Well, I think you got most of it there. First of all, thank you so much for having me on the show. It's great to be back and great to be with such a a great panel as well. So, yeah, I look at differences in who votes, why people vote, why they don't, the effect of election laws and voter turnout, and a lot of other matters that are of increasing relevance given the polarization that we're seeing, given the debates we're having, and really given the future of uh, American democracy. So thank you again.
0: Yeah, and your expertise is going to really be a, a play a big role as we discuss some of our topics today. I saved Greg Bluestein, who is with us every Wednesday, political reporter at the AJC, for last. Greg, the reason I did that is I know you can give us just a little information um, that uh, will speak to something that was discussed on this show yesterday. Yesterday, we talked about the Atlanta mayor's race. We talked about the fact that Kasim Reed is going to have a big birthday fundraiser. Uh, tomorrow, many people anticipate it's the beginning of his effort to run relaunch a mayor's uh, camp, a mayoral campaign. Um, and Sam Olins on the show yesterday said that if, that if uh, Kasim Reed has not filed paperwork, just the initial paperwork to create a committee that he can use to raise money, he'd be in violation of, of ethics laws. And in fact, uh, the HAC reports this morning, Greg, that he has filed uh, paperwork to establish a new committee. Right?
4: Yeah, the, the paperwork um, apparently has been filed yesterday, uh, last night, but it won't pop until later on, on Wednesday. Um, so we'll see if you know how how quickly that that the website is updated. Yeah, he is taking the initial steps for this party, from what we understand, um, to pave the way for a mayoral race, so that he's not in violation. Of ethics rules, although I guess there there could be ethics and, and campaign law experts who who quibble with with, with that uh, understanding of, of the law. I'm no campaign finance expert, so we'll see what ethics complaints might be filed, uh, but he mm-hmm. at least is paving the way for that run.
0: Well, we spent a lot of time talking about the Atlanta mayor's race, especially in the context of the horrible, horrible rash of gun violence in the city, and we're going to take a pass on that conversation today, but certainly will return to uh, what is one of the most important races for mayor in the Southeast, and certainly in the state of Georgia. Greg, let's, let's talk about uh, election laws for uh, some time, both state of Georgia and federal. Um, starting with the fact that yesterday, a group of religious leaders held a rally at the state capitol uh, the AJC says that those leaders represent something like a thousand churches, which is a, mm-hmm. a, a, a huge number, obviously. And, and while they are continuing to uh, uh, contend that Georgia's election law is, it discriminates against minorities, will, uh, uh, is an effort to limit minority votes, they're also talking about using Georgia as an example of why Congress needs to pass the, at least one of the federal election bills that the House has passed that the Senate is sitting on, right?
4: Yeah, this is something that we heard um, you know, from the moment the legislation, the first versions of the, of the voting law legislation were first introduced, that Georgia could be example A, exhibit A, for why there needs to be some sort of federal uh, preemption, some federal law that overrides any sort of restrictions that states like Georgia um, wind up passing. And, of course, with the news last week, I know we'll talk about, um, of Senator Joe Manchin uh, saying essentially closing the door on a filibuster, and uh, in, into the filibuster, and then this week with Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell saying no dice for even uh, a, a more scaled-back John Lewis voting act. Mm-hmm. Uh, that has completely put a new wrinkle in, and that's why these pastors met. And you're right, they represent over 1,000 churches, the, one of the leaders uh, is uh, Reginald Jackson, who is uh, the, the head of, a, um, of the African Methodist Episcopal Church's district, which covers parts of Georgia and South Carolina. So that, that, uh, that in itself is a huge number of churches, and they're trying to bring a moral voice to this debate. They're trying to say that it's a, it's a moral imperative for Congress to take action.
0: Um, I want to talk a little bit more specifically in a few minutes about what the uh, uh, John Lewis— Voting Rights Act uh, encompasses, and what the For the People, the much broader uh, proposal that came out of the the House, uh, proposes to do. But before we do, Bernard, I, I I'd, I'd like to talk a little bit with you, and then and then get Julie and uh, Sam involved here about an article in which you were quoted extensively that Five Thirty Eight ran a couple of weeks ago. We continue, Bernard, to hear voices raised saying that the Georgia election laws are um, intended to suppress the vote. Um, you are quoted in the article as saying it's not quite as easy as that. Can can you explain that to us?
3: Sure. So in the article, we're talking about election laws broadly, the election law changes that we've seen across the country, uh, not just as a result of the 2020 election, although a large part of it, but also even, you know, prior to the 2020 election. And what we noticed is that, or what I've noticed in my research and other colleagues have found, is that states have been enacting these laws often in response to the mobilization that we see of democratic aligned groups, African-Americans in particular, especially in the South, also because of the new space that they have to do this after the Shelby v. Holder ruling in 2013 that struck down key provisions of the Voting Rights Act, been enacting more restrictive measures, in fact, limiting um, previously expanded opportunities to vote. So I think that there's some interesting questions here about the intent. But when we talk about the effect of these laws, one of the things that I note in the article is that it takes a lot of work. You have to be very careful in reaching conclusions about the effect of these laws, because with so many things changing at the same time, uh, we often get a, a mistaken impression of how much of an effect or the difficulty in finding an effect of these laws in the first place.
0: Um, You basically say that because, especially, I mean, the Georgia law is a perfect example. Uh, There are so many different components to the law that it's difficult to single out any one and understand how it um, is, in fact, having an impact on people turning out to the polls, you've got to look at, at all of them in some ways and, and reach conclusions based on the data that you accumulate only after people vote.
3: Well I think that you know you have to be careful in the framework that you, you know look at and there's a lot of political scientists who are doing excellent work trying to understand you know both what's the, what's the intent of these laws and what's the effect of these laws and thinking about how we can uh, encapsulate or in, understand, The interactions between these laws, for example, changing absentee ballot period, changing the requirements for how you cast an absentee ballot, changing the in-person voting experience, all of these might interact with each other to create uh, depressed turnout among certain groups or depressed turnout overall, even though a single provision in isolation might not have much of a detectable effect. So I, I think, again, it's really a story about being very careful instead of saying that one provision on its own has no effect. It's really just that, right. you know, it's difficult to disentangle all these things.
0: Julie Smith and then Sam Park. Um, if you could, it, it's we've now the legislative session has been over for quite some time. Uh, the law has uh, the governor has signed the, the bill that puts all of these new election laws into effect. Uh, and yet it can cont- there continues to be resonance, not just here in Georgia, but across the country. Um, I'd like to ask each of you what you think about the fact that there is such a long, long life uh, to concerns about it. Julie Smith, and then Sam, please weigh in.
1: Sure. I think that, you know, I think what's happened is our government has lost the ability to listen to the people. Um, There seems to be an awful lot of chatter about party lines and, and what's right for one group or another group, but but they're, they're not listening to the people that will be casting those votes. So um, when you have mass numbers of people saying, I, I can't vote, I'm disenfranchised, this does cause a problem for me uh, to be able to participate in the election process, that needs to be heard. And we need to explore ways to make the process simpler and easier uh, rather than more restrictive. Um, and, and you make a good point with these laws having so many different components all just sort of like braided up together. It's, it's difficult to pull out one thread and examine that thread when, when the braid is so tight. And um, once the, once the law is passed, it, you know, the, we, now we suffer the ramifications, whether they're good or bad. Um, and in this case, I think that uh, the, the voice of the people is not being heard, and that's disconcerting.
0: So let me, before I turn to Sam, uh, let me remind our listeners that although you run for your office in a nonpartisan election, uh, you do identify as a Republican, um, but you yes. have for, for some time made it clear that you are not in that camp of conservative Republicans who have sort of followed uh, Donald Trump to the ends of the earth and beyond.
1: Right. It's, it's amazing. I'm, I'm just fascinated by um, the, um, the division within the Republican Party right now and um, the fact that Trump can, in essence, do no wrong. And um, I do... Uh, like you said I identify as republican i'm I'm certainly very fiscally conservative and um my values are very conservative and and uh, but i I think maybe I'm a little more socially liberal but um but it's it's an interesting dichotomy and the division within the republican party is is um it's it's going to change the future of American politics so we'll we'll see how that that shakes out Sam
0: yeah so i'm
2: i'm You know, I remain incredibly concerned about the national concerted effort across state legislatures to suppress the vote, because I think it's important to recognize that the bill in Georgia, again, was essentially model legislation created and produced by the Heritage Foundation um, and dropped in multiple um, state legislatures, again, across the country. Uh, The intent of which I would say is to make it harder for citizens to vote, just reading, you know, based on the plain language of the legislation itself, which restricts uh, many ways in which people can vote, whether it's early, by mail, or on Election Day. And certainly that's incredibly concerning, um, you know, for Asian Americans, uh, about 70% of which voted early or or by absentee or by mail. And so, you know, especially in this moment in which, you know, communities are trying to have their voices heard, trying to participate uh, in in our government to then, uh, you know, face and, and for that to be responded by trying to silence their voice, I think, is, is that much more concerning. And why it's so important, I think, uh, to ensure that there is federal oversight um, of, of our elections uh, to protect the right of every American to participate and have their voice heard <coughs> in our government.
0: So um, thank you all for, uh, for that. Let me turn, Greg. You've already begun uh, – uh, talking a little bit about what's happening in Congress right now. So let, let's talk a bit about the two bills that uh, Congress has to consider, the Senate now has to con- consider, and, and let's put them in a context that, uh, let's, let's go back to Shelby v. Holder. Shelby v. Holder was the decision by the Supreme Court, of course, which essentially uh, took away pre-clearance from the states which had been required since the Voting Rights Act of 1965 for any change they made in election law, everything from uh, redistricting down to we're going to move a polling place, we're going to eliminate a a precinct polling place or whatever, had to be cleared by the Justice Department, the concern being that uh, the states who were targeted for preclearance, had in the past shown patterns of discrimination. That was outlawed by the Supreme Court. So the, the, the bill that became known as the John Lewis Voting Rights Bill really has a very simple uh, 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 concept behind it. It basically says we need preclearance again. And that's having trouble getting past the Senate as, as well as the bigger act for the people, and we'll talk about that in a minute.
4: Yeah, trouble's a, an understatement. Um, after the For the People Act uh, effectively was scuttled by Joe Manchin's decision, uh, his 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 very stark uh, statement saying he will not support rolling back the filibuster, Democrats hoped that the, at least there could be some support for the for the John Lewis Act, which is you know which is far more targeted, and far, uh, far less broad. Um, but uh, there was only one Republican who who co-sponsored that measure. That was Lisa Murkowski out of Alaska. Um. So it, it, if Republicans filibuster it, it means you need 60 votes. It means you need to win over nine more Republicans to support it. And then this week, Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell said he does not believe there is any need for the John Lewis Act because he doesn't believe that there is still persistent um, and systemic discrimination and, and need for uh, those federal protections, so that effectively means that Democrats will try to force their hand by having m- m- largely what will come out to a symbolic floor vote, forcing Republicans to filibuster um, the, uh, the 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 John Lewis Act. I don't know what the path forward is. I know there's a lot of smart minds from both parties um, who are, who are who are who know the ins and outs of of Congress, but right now it looks pretty bleak for for any sort of uh, compromise over either of these voting rights bills.
0: So um, it, it, in terms of the John Lewis Act, Sam, we should point out that it has particular relevance as, uh, as the state of Georgia, like every other state in the country, goes into a reapportionment session after uh, uh, the um, uh, Census Bureau finally releases a data specific to districts across the country, which will happen late this fall. And without preclearance, um, there is the chance well, there won't be any federal oversight of how lines are redrawn, Sam.
2: Uh, correct. So, of course, there shall be the order removed. Um, I believe Section Five, the, the pre-clearance section, but uh, Section Two of the Voting Rights Act remains intact, which provides an opportunity um, to potentially contest the map uh, You know, in, in in the event that you know they are uh, violative of of uh, the the, the Voting Rights Act. Um, All of that to say, you know, one thing I would mention just is, you know, I think while bipartisanship is important when it comes to um, all the issues that we face, um, it's important to recognize that there is no bipartisanship when it comes to a lot of these uh, suppressive uh, measures that we're seeing passed across state legislatures around the country. And I hope that, you know, uh, our our federal uh, uh, Democratic Congress members um and senators understand. Um you know, I I invite them down to Georgia to see how the Republican Party here uh passed uh SB two oh two and the same is true across the country as well. So you know I think in the same way, um, you know, when it comes to reapportionment across this country, um I, I, I don't think that Republicans are gonna be trying to work in a bipartisan manner.
0: Bernard?
3: So I think when we Consider the two election bills. We really, you know, find the bind that the the Democrats, but I would say advocates of even just retaining the um, you know the right to vote and the the kind of expanded opportunities to vote as a result of the pandemic, um, retaining those opportunities to vote, um, find themselves in. So, you know, you have HR one, which is a very broad bill that addresses not just you know opportunities to vote, but also ethics, right? Also. Reining in uh, campaign spending, campaign finance, uh, obviously reining in partisan gerrymandering. Uh, you know, these are exceptionally popular provisions among Democrats, clearly, but also the vast, vast majority of Republicans. When you talk about whether a bill is bipartisan, as Democrats have pointed out and others as well across the political spectrum, it is a bipartisan bill in that it has a vast majority of support from both Democratic and Republican American citizens. It's Republicans who are in power, Who, for some reason believe that these provisions will harm their chances of being elected. Now, in a democracy, the party that wins the most votes, right, the candidate that wins the most votes affiliated with a particular political party is the one that wins. And the solution to not winning elections, right, is to have more people vote for you, to advocate for policies that are popular. So this this seems completely backward in many ways, the way we think about a democracy. But when it comes to the John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act, right, to just reenacting the preclearance provisions that were in force and I remind, you know, Senator McConnell and others passed with nearly unanimous support, including the support of Senator McConnell in just 2006, right, when he was in the Senate. You know, it's really about just shoring up, right, fixing a, a really a small technical issue that the Supreme Court found in the in the existing Voting Rights Act, in Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act, and the pre provisions. So it's, again, shocking that this is being turned into some kind of partisan debate when not that long ago, people who are in the Senate now opposing just fixing that provision of the Voting Rights Act supported it, you know, full-throated support for it, um, had no issue with it before. So it's really surprising and in many ways sad that when we have 80 million people that didn't vote, um, who are eligible to vote but didn't vote in our most recent presidential election, we're still talking about provisions that frankly, you know, make it more difficult to vote and denying people the opportunity to participate in our democracy.
1: I agree completely with you, Bernard. The, um, the number of people that didn't vote, for whatever their reason, needs to be heard, and that's—I think—that's when I mentioned that there's an awful lot of chatter on on the federal level. It's listening to the people. Why, why are you not voting? Is it is it uh, the challenge with regard to uh, obtaining a photo ID? Is it um, accessibility to to the polls? Is it I feel more comfortable voting absentee than in person? So. Um, you know, it's it's very discouraging that people choose not to vote, and uh, I think the Democratic Party did an incredible job in this last presidential election activating the people to go and vote. And I think the Republican Party needs to do the same. We need to be making sure we're registering young people. We're making sure that we're talking to uh, to people to make them understand what their right is as an American citizen, and, and the, the electoral process is is a basic right of our Constitution that we need to make sure uh, people recognize and participate in.
0: Hey, uh, Greg, uh, you know, uh, as well as anyone, that this will be the first election, I mean the first redistricting, rather, in which we will not have preclearance in place uh, in, in, in any state that was once subject to that, but you also know... Uh, Republican leaders in the legislature were very proud of the fact that when there was a pre-clearance clause, the Justice Department signed off on the last lines that that the Republican majority uh, put in place. And we should also point out that um, that applies primarily to racial gerrymandering, whether mm-hmm. or not districts were drawn around issues of race. Partisan gerrymandering has, has never gotten the uh, – the, uh, uh, approval of the court to to use as a reason to uh, uh, throw a district out.
4: Yeah, and I can promise there'll be plenty of partisan gerrymandering uh, this redistricting <laughs> session later on this year, uh, particularly focused on Atlanta's suburban congressional districts, whether it be Lucy McBath's district is drawn more difficult for her, or Carolyn Bordeaux's district is drawn more difficult for her. One of those two districts, if not both, will be a lot more complicated uh, fairly soon, and by the way, because of the census delays uh, or the census timing, um, this this redistricting session could could run right up against the next legislative session, which starts in January.
0: Yeah, yeah, Bernard.
3: So you know, again, I think this points to this, you know, in some ways backward uh, political polarization that we're seeing on the bills like HR one, the For the People Act, right? You know. In states like Georgia, sure, Republicans who control the state legislature and the governorship, right, are going to gerrymander in their favor. And as you mentioned, Bill, the Supreme Court and other courts, are, especially the Supreme Court, has never, you know, stepped in to say that partisan gerrymandering violates the Constitution. But in other states, like in Maryland, Democrats participate in partisan gerrymandering, right? They're going to draw the lines in their favor. So across the political spectrum, right, this is something that citizens like. Politicians, especially those in power, tend to like quite a bit. So, again, and I agree with the mayor here, you know, we're seeing provisions, these pieces of legislation that the American people want. Democrats and Republicans want there to be limits on gerrymandering, particularly partisan gerrymandering. The courts have not been able to do anything about it. Why are these bills being being opposed, right, by Republicans in the Senate? Why are Democrats like Joe Manchin saying, These aren't bipartisan. They have the support of people from both parties. I think it's just just a fascinating window into the political discourse and this fundamentally incorrect notion that some have that if more people vote, it's impossible for their party to win.
2: Yeah, I I would add, you know, I think it's important to really begin looking at these issues, particularly when it comes to voting rights and redistricting, not from a conservative, liberal spectrum or Republican, Democratic spectrum, but an American or un-American perspective. And, and again, undermining the ability of citizens to participate, making it harder and and imposing barriers, allowing politicians to to choose their voters. Again, these ultimately undermine um, American democracy and and strip away the freedom for citizens, for we, the people, to ultimately determine the direction of our country. And and so I think, certainly, um, an enormous amount of work and reform has to continue but of course, that's made all the more difficult uh, in, the str- in, in the system in which you are working uh, as well.
0: So, uh, Greg, before we get to a break, uh, Bernard pointed out that uh, the difference between a state like Georgia controlled by Republicans and one controlled by Democrats, Maryland, but we can look at our own state to see how each party has manipulated uh, district lines based on partisanship. Roy Barnes, when he was governor, pushed through one of the most egregious (laughs) redistrictings that the state had ever seen. His chief of staff, Bobby Kahn, became the Darth Vader of the state capitol for the way in which he drew crazy lines. And there are many people who think that although it's not the kind of everyday issue that voters tend to focus on, there there is this sense that it was an example of Barnes uh, being a sort of a dictatorial presence and that voters did respond to that, among other things, and he lost re-election, Greg.
4: Yeah, the whole attempt to drive multi-candidate districts and draw incumbents <laughs> with each other. Look, it'll be brutal. It'll be all we talk about near the end of this year, too, because it'll be some brutal lines, especially when it comes— uh, to the congressional seats, but 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 gets less attention, as you noted, was state legislative districts because you know a lot of a lot, a lot of voters might not even know who their state rep is, but as, as Sam Park can tell you, they, they make a huge difference in our daily lives.
0: Yeah, all right, let's get to our first break of the show, we'll be back with more in just a moment. AJC political reporter Greg Bluestein, Bernard Fraga, professor of political science at Emory University, Representative Sam Park, Democrat from Gwinnett County, and Tifton Mayor Julie Smith join us today. If you, uh, Julie Smith and Sam Park, you're the two elected officials on the show today. Um, and if you don't mind, I'd, I'd like to get your read on something very simple. There is the, what is happening in Congress right now, is so frustrating to so many citizens of this country that nothing seems to be accomplished. There's very few bills that can actually pass both uh, the House and the Senate up there. So Julie Smith and then Sam Park, why would you want, there are so many people lining up to run for U.S. Senator, U.S. House. As the mayor of a city where you actually have to work to accomplish things for your community, why would you ever want to go to Washington except for personal power. I honest to goodness don't understand it right now.
1: That's the ten million dollar question, Bill. I have no idea. <laughs> Listen, um, it, you know, it's just always—it's just such an honor to be able to serve in local politics, and uh, it's where the rubber meets the road. It really is. You can't go to the grocery store, or to church, or you know, where out to eat without someone coming over and, and talking to you about the pothole in the road, or you know, a, a street sign's down, or something needs to happen. And and I love that part of of uh, being uh being the mayor of the city of Tifton it's just such an honor for me and um it's just you know I keep saying it's just kind of sad that our our folks in Washington have lost the um ability to hear from their local constituents back home. It's the people that, um, that are struggling day to day to put food on the table, make sure their kids are in school, and, you know, they worry about how they're going to pay for college or who's going to take care of, of grandma during a, a pandemic and those kinds of things. So um, it's, we've got to somehow or another get back to the basics of listening to each other and talking to each other and being open and honest with the discussion and set aside, in my opinion, I know this is a, this is a challenge that will never happen, but set aside those political aspirations and those those deep divides and really listen to each other um and and begin to compromise and, and bring the state and the nation back together i've said that many times so um so i why someone would go to washington and, and jump into the shark infested water i don't know but um but i'm thankful <laughs> that there are people who who are willing to uh to sacrifice and and to serve our country in that manner and uh i, I listen I, I pray for them daily i truly do <laughs>
0: <laughs> Sam Park, look, there are things that happen to the Georgia legislature that you as a Democrat are very unhappy about. I mean, the passage of the election uh, bill, the passage of a, a law that all but outlaws abortion in Georgia. Um, at the same time, there is still some ability to have bipartisan cooperation in the Georgia legislature. So I ask you the same question. Isn't that where, as Julie Smith points out, the rubber meets the road rather than what we experience from Washington these days?
2: Certainly. So, you know, as a state representative for House District 101 and chair of the Gwinnett delegation, it's it's a big honor to serve in the state legislature, my home state. Um, And there's a tremendous amount of good that we can do. And, of course, I think 80 to 90 percent of most of the bills that reach the House floor uh, pass with near unanimous support. Um, all of that to say, of course, uh, serving in Congress, uh, whether the House or the, or the U.S. Senate, um, provides an incredible opportunity to do an enormous amount of good for Americans across this country. Um, you know, just look at the um, the, the American Rescue Plan uh, that passed. Um, you know, we really have an opportunity at the federal level to transform the lives of Americans, and so. Um, whether it's at the state or the federal level, you know, despite the challenges that we face, certainly I, I would hope that folks are running for these positions are trying to uh, do the, the best that they can to, to serve their fellow neighbors.
0: Uh, Bernard, am I overstating the case about the uh, way in which gridlock makes it? Uh, you, you've said repeatedly on this show, you've made the point that uh, there are things that it, it makes no sense to you. It cannot be passed by uh, uh, Republicans and Democrats uh, together. But When we think of the fact that Joe Manchin now says the filibuster, essentially it takes the position that the filibuster will continue. Uh, President Biden's entire agenda is in jeopardy, infrastructure, immigration reform, so many of the things he wants to accomplish. Is there an end to this, Bernard?
3: Well, you know, I'm not sure. I think some people um, take a more pessimistic view and say that you know, prolonged periods of gridlock, failure to pass meaningful election reform, or even to ensure the right to vote for Americans will lead to, you know, a, a tremendous backlash, um, you know, opposition to continuing with the system. I, I'm not sure that's the case. I, I'm more optimistic. I'm hopeful that uh, voters will make decisions based on, um, you know, something like their self-interest, but also, their, you know, thinking about future ne- generations, thinking about what's best for Preserving our democracy and, and healing our nation. So I think that, you know, the specifics of you know the agenda items, and I know many people in the Biden administration, you know, were not surprised that Joe Manchin uh, said that he wasn't going to, you know, um, participate in getting rid of the filibuster. Were not surprised that he opposed HR one. Uh, you know, are going to look for paths forward. Uh, maybe portions of the bills. You know, we'll get some bipartisan support maybe some, you know, Joe mentioned has said that he supports uh, the John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act. I think that there's opportunities here for some of Biden's agenda. And I think the way the infrastructure bill has played out really shows that, right? Biden came out with a very large, expansive bill with a lot of new spending. Republicans countered with a much smaller bill that was mostly repurposing coronavirus relief spending. Uh, You know, they came closer to each other. At the end of the day, it looks like uh, Biden's gonna be proceeding by negotiating with a few moderate Republican senators instead. But I think I think there will be something uh, that happens with infrastructure, and I'm hopeful that a similar approach could be taken with you know things that are, are really measures to preserve our democracy.
4: Yeah, the professor's right. right. This infrastructure bill has been fascinating to watch because Joe Biden was elected as a bipartisan deal maker. That was one of his main pitches to middle of the road Americans throughout the country. Hey, I I can I can reach across party lines. Um, he came in with a very progressive agenda, um, but at the same time, he's someone who has decades of experience in the U.S. Senate, and and who is yet to really show how he can he can he can make uh, agreements across party lines uh, since he since his since he took office. And so he's come down about a trillion dollars um, in the infrastructure package uh, just in the last few weeks. Republicans have gone up a couple hundred billion dollars, um, but this will be a real test. To see if if the real deal can be made, and if not, uh, the backup plan for for Democrats is they still can fast track. Um, they can still fast track budget negotiations through a reconciliation process to still pass this without uh, without fearing a Republican filibuster. But again, Republicans will be able to paint that as a one-sided process, and I think Democrats and certainly President Biden would rather have uh, some consensus over this.
0: Sam. Sure.
2: So it's challenging as, as it's been in, in operating this hyper-partisan environment. I, I still have full faith and trust in our system and, and, and our ability as Americans to make progress uh, by utilizing the power of our vote. Um, and, and I think it's important to recognize that, you know, when, when we're talking about a lot of these big issues, if it's ultimately politicians who are getting in the way of bipartisan issues or making progress on bipartisan issues, again, I, I would encourage as, as strongly as I can uh, for our elected uh, representatives to ultimately pass legislation that is supported by a bipartisan majority of of American citizens, even if the system is is producing uh, partisan politicians who are impeding our ability to make progress.
0: All right, uh, Sam Park gets the last word in this segment of Political Rewind. We're going to take our final break of the show and come back with more in just a moment. Mayor Smith, anytime we have a mayor of uh, Georgia City on the show, we like to get a sense of what's happening in your city. Before we started today, you told us you have big news down there in terms of your uh, uh, what's going on with masking and uh, dealing with the virus in Tifton.
1: That is exactly right. We had our city council meeting on Monday night at which time we um, removed our mass mandate for city facilities. Many of our city facilities were either closed or on restricted access, and so we've opened everything back up. Uh, this weekend we've got our first big Um, kind of public engagement with a we do a summer music series sort of a street dance kind of a fun south georgia event and um so we'll have that saturday evening and and invite everyone to come out we're still encouraging people to socially distance when you can wash your hands do all of the cdc protocol and please go get your vaccine get vaccinated so uh so can't can't preach that enough
0: yeah, I, Sam Park, I think that's important. Amelia Brock pointed out uh, uh, to all of us before we went on the air that uh, uh, the Department of Public Health here has uh, said that we are now seeing this variant that started in India and has ended up overrunning Great Britain is, has now been identified in Georgia, and uh, it's a highly contagious form of the virus uh, with uh, dire consequences, but vaccination seems to be effective in uh, uh, preventing you from getting it or, at the very worst, getting a very mild case, Sam. Uh,
2: yeah, so, you know, we, we are still very much in the midst of a pandemic, um, and I think it's important for us to recognize how deadly this virus is, as well as the long-term health implications that it causes for, for folks to, um, uh, 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 you know, get it. One of the things that I wish that uh, we could see in the state of Georgia is is leadership, quite frankly, who takes this seriously and who really takes efforts and steps uh, to encourage citizens uh, to get the virus. I think in Ohio, uh, they had a lottery in which uh, folks could receive a million dollars, which which, uh, resulted in a spike in in getting the vaccine, Um, you know. As elected officials, you know, where where you know our job and responsibility is to do what we can to protect the health and safety of those we serve. Again, you know, our as leaders, we have to demonstrate and encourage folks to do the right thing to protect themselves as well as their fellow neighbors.
0: Um, Bernard, uh, the uh, the vaccine has been highly effective. Emory, I, I, am I correct that there's a requirement to be vaccinated at Emory, or just a strong suggestion? At, that students be vaccinated. I can't remember which. Uh,
3: my understanding is that at the moment we're, it's a requirement for students and it's you know, strongly, strongly recommended, encouraged, provided obviously to staff and to faculty, right? Uh, I think that the, you know, the, the recent feedback that we've gotten is that it, you know life is gonna be, which is I think the, the message everyone needs to hear, life is much easier for you when you get the vaccine, right? The CDC and their updated guidelines made it exceptionally clear that you know the masking even social distancing gathering indoors all of these things are safe activities once vaccinated and are unsafe activities right not wearing a mask being inside being in the crowd you know going dining you know can be very unsafe if you're not vaccinated and i think that's the message that people need to hear it's beyond the political discourse beyond all of these issues right about you know um you know, the origin of the, of the virus, all these other things. It's that, you know, this is about returning to normal, and the vaccines are the path that we have forward. Not herd immunity, not other people will get it, so you don't need to get it. It's everybody getting vaccinated as soon as you can.
1: I did want to mention the Georgia Municipal Association uh, has a very strong campaign called Give It a Shot in which all of the elected officials across the state are encouraged to reach out to their constituents and uh, and encourage that vaccination take place. So uh, we're seeing uh, lots of social media posts. We're seeing lots of sharing on Twitter and and Instagram and all of the various social media platforms to encourage every citizen. And that, that Give It a Shot campaign through the Georgia Municipal Association, I think has made a tremendous difference and and I think we'll continue to. So uh, if you've had your vaccination, congratulations, please encourage someone else to go out and get theirs as well.
0: Greg, uh, we do need to point out that uh, Georgia remains uh, one of the uh, lowest in the nation in uh, vaccinating its uh, people who are at 30 some percent. So we still have a long way to go.
4: We still have a really long way to go. Um, yeah, about one third of Georgians have been fully inoculated, but we're in the we're in the lower tier for sure. And um, the politicization of the vaccine and of this entire process has made it even more difficult for public health officials. And my wife is one of them <laughs> who's been struggling to get uh, to get healthcare workers and others uh, vaccinated. Uh, and I kind of see it
0: firsthand. We have never pointed out that your wife has been deeply involved in working on COVID-related issues in her job as at 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 Emory University.
4: Yeah, at Emory Midtown. So she's she's among many, many people uh there trying to trying to get health care of them have, but look, it's the same, you know, the same problem that we're facing with the general society sometimes uh, with healthcare workers who are exposed to all sorts of Um, diseases and threats every day still have some reluctance too and so she's helping trying to convince them to do so.
0: Well, we we appreciate all that she's doing along with all the other public health workers. All right, real quick, Greg, you have an update for us on Kasim Reed uh, before we take up our final story of the show.
4: I am looking at the AJC story right now. Kasim Reed has officially entered the wide open mayor's race. He filed paperwork that just popped as we were speaking a few minutes ago on the State Ethics Commission.
0: All right. Well, we'll have a lot more to say about that in the days and weeks ahead. The 900-pound presence in the mayor's race, it looks like, will be Kasim Reed. Um, and I'm not referring to his whether he's lost or gained weight. I'm just talking about no. he is a very big name in this race. All right, uh, Greg, we we don't have as much time as we probably need to discuss this, but we know that, that Governor Kemp had uh, – uh, been praised by the Trump administration for being in the forefront of governors who were looking for what they claim is are creative ways to deal with the Affordable Care Act, with Medicaid, and the like. And, and so the, the Kemp administration filed for two waivers, one that would put a re- work requirement in place for Medicaid and also expand Medicaid by some, they thought, 50,000 people who did not have the coverage, and uh, the second one uh, being, quite simply, uh, a request that we the state take down the federal ACA marketplace website and replace it with private insurance uh, uh, companies who would be able to state their case to people who came there. Uh, the Biden administration has now put at least temporary holds on both of those things, Greg.
4: Yeah, and the, the worker requirement got a lot more attention. Um, uh, because it was far-reaching. But the website, um, the the governor's plan to block Georgia's access to healthcare.gov shopping website was also a key part of this plan. And um, not surprisingly, um, that has been put on hold as well. I know that there are behind-the-scenes discussions between the governor's office and the Biden administration about about a sort of compromise um, to get one or both of these plans back in effect. Um, But this was this was something that the Trump administration had cheered on. The Trump administration had had approved in the final weeks of his of his administration. And one of the first steps, one of the first major steps that that Joe Biden has taken in Georgia, at least, um, has been to put both of these on ice.
0: Sam?
3: Sorry.
0: Um, We're suddenly getting some. Is
3: that better?
0: Go ahead. So I applaud
2: the Biden administration for, for pausing the, the uh, two Kemp waivers who um, I had uh, very serious concerns about and wrote public comment. Um, you know, first, the 1115 waiver, you know, that would essentially cover less people and cost more money. It's a bad deal for Georgians. And and two, when it comes to removing uh, the marketplace, the ACA marketplace, 500,000 Georgians received access to health care through that. And so to then undermine uh, that component, I think, again, very, very bad deal for Georgians. Um, and and if we're just going to give private health insurance companies more power, well look at what United Healthcare uh, is doing when it comes to their deal with Northside, but also one of their policies that just came out uh, recently to retroactively deny emergency plans. And so, you know, we we still need to do an enormous amount of work and and do everything we can to expand Medicaid in Georgia, which is. Way forward and cost effective way forward uh, in which we can ensure access to healthcare for all.
0: Julie Smith weigh in on all this for us, please.
1: Healthcare is so important. I mean, here we are coming off of a pandemic. Um, I have children and grandchildren that, uh, you know, I, I love dearly uh, the thought of them not having access to healthcare because of uh, the um, unavailability, from a financial standpoint is is very disconcerting so um you know, I don't know what the answer is. I do think that we need to continue to look for solutions uh, i I wish I had the magic bullet to to fire into the air and and would you know shed some incredible words on on what the answer would be i don't, but I do think that we need to continue to have the conversation when five hundred thousand people don't have access. Uh, and are impacted, that's a significant number, and that's that's very troubling. So uh, so hopefully, well, you know, cooler heads will prevail, and, and we can come up with a solution.
0: Um, Bernard Fraga, you want to weigh in?
3: Yeah, just briefly, I, I think this really connects to the discussion we've been having, you know, throughout the show today. The people most impacted by these changes, the ones who don't have employer-provided health insurance or shopping through the marketplace are eligible for, you know, federal insurance programs, Black or white are the ones who are not voting here in Georgia or have vastly lower rates of voter turnout. And so it's really sad that I think politicians don't hear the voices of the people most impacted because limitations on their you know, ability to vote, their access to the polling place. But I think that's really important to keep in mind as well.
0: Julie Smith, I do want to follow up when you said you don't have a magic solution for all this. Unfortunately, it has been the Republican governors of Georgia and legislators, Republican legislators, who have not wanted to do a full expansion of Medicaid under the Affordable Care Act. And um, there are obviously many, many people out there who think that the state is losing access not only to insuring so many more people, but losing all these federal funds that will be pouring into the state if we expanded it uh, uh, to uh, its full potential.
1: Exactly. You know, again, I, we've talked about um, so much on this show today, but I think one of the, the, the sounds that resonates to me, one of the comments, is that we are, for the most part, moderate, middle-of-the-road people. And we expect our legislators, our congresspeople to listen to us and to hear our our words and our voice. And... um, you know, it's 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 the moderate middle of the road that I think is being lost in this. I think the attention is on the peripheral, uh, the far right or the far left, um, and and it's it's impacting our our state and and uh, and certainly our country.
2: So, so one thing I would one thing I would say, you know, if, if we're looking at access to health care from a moderate or even a conservative approach or perspective, you know. In my mind, that means you look around the different states to see what works and follow suit. Thirty-seven other states or thirty-eight other states have already expanded Medicaid to great success. They've seen their uninsured populations decrease. They've seen their the health the expenses of the state decrease as well. And Georgia, you know, it, it's that you know receive billions of dollars, uh, create thirty thousand health care related jobs if we came together and expanded Medicaid.
0: All right. Um, We are out of time uh, for today's show. Thank you all for all of the uh, topics you were able to uh, talk about uh, so knowledgeably uh, with us today. Bernard Fraga from Emory University, uh, Mayor Julie Smith-Tifton, Representative Sam Park from Gwinnett County, and Greg Bluestein. Of course, we always love the fact that you join us for the show on Wednesdays. Next time you're on, we want to get an update on how your book is doing, Greg, but we don't have time for it today. We're going to be back with you tomorrow for another edition of Political Rewind. In the meantime, I'm Bill Nyga. Take care. Stay healthy. Listen to what Mayor Smith says. Get vaccinated if you haven't done it. And if you had, tell a friend to do it, too. I'll see you all tomorrow.